Well, you might wonder as you came in why we were listening to um, piano music, and that's because the guy that we're going to talk about this evening, James O'Fraser, was a very accomplished classical pianist, and in fact, uh, in his time in China, used to give uh, concerts which were remembered both by the missionaries and the businessmen in Shanghai whenever he came down from the mountains. And it was exactly a hundred years ago this year that a bright graduate in engineering from Imperial College London set foot on Chinese soil. Just 30 years later, he'd established a legacy in the form of a church with these tribes, the Lizhu tribes in southwestern China, which is reckoned today still to have 200,000 members. And you might wonder why you've come out on an evening where you could have been at home watching whatever it is on the, on the telly to hear about this guy uh, who almost nobody's ever heard of. But we were, I was praying about what we should talk about to follow up from the series that we had when we talked about Wilberforce a little bit earlier in the year, and just really felt that this guy, who, who I'd certainly found very inspiring reading about him, was somebody that we could learn a lot from. Um, and I think the life of this solitary mission from two, maybe three generations ago has an enormous amount to teach us about some of the things that we've been learning here at Burlington over the past few months, lessons about effective evangelism, uh, about the importance of being part of a team um, that Heather was talking about even this morning. Um, and most of all, uh, lessons about the vital part that prayer had to play in all of this. Well, so who was James Outram Fraser? Goodness knows if I pronounced that right. But anyway, he was born in 1886 to a very uh, devout English mother and a Scots-Canadian farmer as a father who was an eminent vet. And the marriage was not a particularly happy one. In fact, he came from a broken home. His mother moved from the family home um, and lived separately for much of his life. But nevertheless, he was hugely influenced by his mother, as we shall see later, and her prayers and her support were absolutely crucial. In fact, he said that uh, his missionary calling was due to his mother's prayers, and that's something I think that we can think about for our own children, our own families. And from early days, he demonstrated some of the abilities which God was to use in later life in China. And there are stories of him walking 44 miles from St. Albans, where he was living, into London and back again in one day. Uh, Another cycling 190 miles without getting off his bike, which has got to hurt, I would have thought. Um, Also, he developed a love of the mountains with holidays in Switzerland, where he reveled in the climbing, the scenery, and the solitude. And we'll see that all of these things were things that God was using to fit him for the work that that God had in mind for him. And academically, he was gifted too. Um, He matriculated to London University, 12th in all England. Um, I think matriculation is what you do before you go up to university, so I guess he did that. And then going up in 1903 to Imperial College to study engineering. Um, And then finally, as I've said, he had this great love of music and was a very talented pianist. So everything was set fair for him to have a brilliant career and um, no doubt to make a great marriage and to uh, uh, at the same time enjoy his hobbies and his great sense of humour and sense of fun. But it was in 1906, in his last year at London University, a friend gave him a small booklet, which is rather unencouragingly titled Do Not Say, which doesn't seem to mean much to me. But anyway, let me uh, give you a little quote from it. A command has been given, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It has not been obeyed. What are we to say to this? If our master returns today and finds that after 19 centuries more than half the world is utterly unevangelized, what are we going to say? 
Most of the excuses we're accustomed to make with such good conscience now, we should wholly be ashamed of then. Well, this booklet had a, little, had a profound effect on Fraser. Um, he'd been and continued to be a, ma- a man who had an immense enjoyment of life, a wonderful sense of humour. But as we've seen, the difficult challenge also appealed to him immensely. And now he'd truly met with God, a whole new dimension of life opened up to him. He always looked on this as his conversion. And, and if he had been a Christian before, it had certainly been a divided allegiance Now, in the words of that great man of revival, Jonathan Edwards, he'd been before God and given himself clean away. I love that. I love that phrase. And he'd certainly done that. And in fact, there was much to give up. He was a talented engineer with a promising career, as we've said, an accomplished musician. And it would be wrong to say that giving these things up cost him nothing. But more really, when you read about him, you get the sense that quite simply, these earlier loves had been eclipsed by a new passion. People noticed the change. Some said he appeared a mature Christian straight away. And so taking his degree, he applied to the China Inland Mission, that mission founded by Hudson Taylor some, I guess, 20 or 30 years before, very much a pioneering work um, at that time. And he was finally accepted after some setbacks and started his year's training in North London before going to China. And and just reading about this, uh, I, and I think he, was struck by the words of, of that founder, Hudson Taylor, maybe we'll do him another time, who said this, There is a living God. He has spoken in his word. He means just what he says and will do all that he has promised. Now, I think to the engineering mind, that statement has a lot to commend it. Very simple, very straightforward. And as Fraser says, and we'll talk about it later, something that works if we trust God. So his parents gave their consent, and in fact it seems that he grew closer to his mother than ever, who said, and this is a challenge I think, I could not pour ointment on his blessed feet as Mary did, but I have given him my boy. And so a crowd lined the platform singing hymns as his train left the station bound for the port and then shipped to Shanghai. And at the age of 22, exactly 100 years ago this year, James Fraser found himself in China. And let's see where he was, if I can make this work. Here we go. So there's China. And uh, he actually went to the Yunnan province, which is down there in the southwest of China. And um, specifically into this particular area. We'll come back to that in a second. So, landing in China, Fraser spent six months in language training, and at the same time, veteran missionary John McCarthy was looking for somebody to help with the work in this far southwest of China, which the um, head honchos back in Shanghai, which is over to the east there, um, which was the headquarters of CIM, had almost decided to give up on, uh, so they could concentrate on work elsewhere. Um, Someone advised John McCarthy to visit the language school, where the new recruits were, to see if there were any likely candidates for the work down there in Yunnan before they gave up completely. John went down there, and the telegram came back, and I love this. He said, send Fraser and anyone else you like. So obviously, he made an enormous impression, didn't really care who else it was, as long as he got Fraser. So they both traveled up through Burma, as you can see there, it's just the the border there from the coast, and then into the um, Yunnan province. And there he was to stay in a place called um, Tengyu. Goodness knows again if I've pronounced that right, but um, there it is. Uh, right in the hills, and you can't really see from this map just uh, what, how rugged the terrain is, but I'll show you a little picture later on. 
um, with a Mr. and Mrs. Embry, um, improving his Chinese, although he went out into the marketplace and frequently nobody can understand what on earth he was talking about, which must have been a bit depressing. And so it was during this time that discipline, uh, he came to learn that discipline was all important in maintaining his walk with God and he found prayer haunts in the hills, walked up and down praying, sometimes praying the words of hymns. And he also came to understand that the important thing was to serve faithfully where God had put him and not try and make excuses, not wait for the next thing to happen. If only I could speak Chinese better. If only uh, I was in a place with more missionary support, more people to work with. If only this. Just when I have another 12 months of really being able to understand how to minister these Chinese, I'll be effective. He understood that those ifs and those whens were things that the devil puts in our minds to stop us from doing anything at all. And I don't know about you, but, but I certainly feel that in my own life quite often. Uh, he understood that he was simply called to serve faithfully in the place where God had put him with the skills that he had at that time. And as his language skills improved, he first saw the Lisieux tribe people, and again, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, from the mountains uh, who were to be his life's work. And I'll show you some pictures of them, hopefully. Um, this is obviously not from 1908. Um, but I'm not quite sure what's happened to her hair. But they, they wear these very colourful turbans, um, ornamental sashes, um, colourful costumes ornamented with shells and with beads. There's a few more here. Uh, these are obviously from today, but from the description that we have of the time, it doesn't look to me like it's, it's um, changed very differently. The Chinese called them monkey people, and they lived in villages perched on the mountains, uh, having been driven there by the invaders who'd come down from the north and driven them out of the rest of China. And James had heard reports of these tribes' people turning to God in great numbers in the, in the east, and he just wondered, he just felt that there might be a turning to God among these western Lisieux as well. So he decided to head out on a solar trek to a city four days away over the mountains, and this just gives you an idea of the scale. It takes him four days to travel from Tengyu, where he is in that um, uh, red box, to a Paoshan, which is uh, in the blue box, doesn't look very far, but the mountain terrain is so rugged, and particularly, I don't know if you can see, but there's a river, the Salween, that, that goes down in the middle and very deep gorges um, to get past that. But I think I might have a picture. There we go. That gives you some idea of the, uh, of the terrain. I'm not exactly sure where that is, but it's in that general area. And you can see why, trekking around in Switzerland, he was in his element, uh, whereas some of us might not have been. <laughs> Uh, the scenery exceeded anything he'd seen, even in Switzerland. Um, and he reached Pauschan, started to preach, gave out copies of Mark's gospel, and um, several responded to that. But it was still to the Lijiu people up in the mountains that he felt called. And he said, I was very much led out in prayer for these people right from the beginning. Something seemed to draw me to them, and the desire in my heart grew until it became a burden that God would give us hundreds of converts for the Lijiu. But he felt, nevertheless, that he should wait for an invitation, and eventually one came to move up from Tengyu into some of these little um, villages, which have rather uh, um, interesting names, Trinket Mountain, Six Hamley Follow, Little River, Melting Pot, and another one that's not even on the map called Pleasant Valley. And he arrived in the middle of a, um, a wedding celebration and immediately started to try and write down the Lisieux language, which was to be one of his life's works. And they said, um, the people said, he's taking away our language and we shall have nothing to speak. But nevertheless, they were very excited. Um, he headed off to Trinket Mountain that you see there, um, just six miles beyond and 7,000 feet up. 
And one of the families that he stayed with, uh, living exactly as, uh, as they did, um, came to understand Jesus through uh, what he explained to them. He taught them some simple hymns, and by the end, they took down the demon shelf, which all of these families had at the back of their houses. They were effectively animists, worshipping the spirits of the mountains. And um, they took the shelf down because they said they wanted to please the true God and his son, Jesus Christ. So it was a real start for him. Well, when he got back to um, Tengu again, he discovered that his colleagues were moving off to another place completely, Tali, along the Burma Road there, and he was left all on his own. As a result, he had to run the whole mission station there by himself, and there were constant interruptions which prevented him studying the language properly. But um, it's interesting, Simon was saying last week that um, these offences of people interrupting him, not being able to get on with what he actually needed to do, he came to realise were opportunities. And he said, I've been feeling lately that personal work is quite as important as preaching. And I think we kind of take that for granted, but maybe 100 years ago it wasn't quite so obvious when they felt they should just stand up and preach and immediately there would be a response. And above all, uh, and this really gets to the heart of it, I think, he um, felt the need of prayer. And I'm going to quote quite a bit from his letters which he wrote, uh, which are in a book called Mountain Rain, which I'd thoroughly recommend to you, which was written actually by his daughter, uh, based on an earlier book. So let me read this. I'm feeling more and more that it is, after all, just the prayers of God's people that call down blessing upon the work, whether they're directly engaged in it or not. Paul may plant a polis water, but it's God who gives the increase. And this increase can be brought down from heaven by believing prayer, whether offered in China or in England. We are, as it were, God's agents, used by him to do his work, not ours. We do our part and then can only look to him with others for his blessing. And this statement is crucial. If this is so, then Christians at home can do as much for foreign missions as those actually on the field. I believe it will be only known on the last day how much has been accomplished in missionary work by the prayers of earnest believers at home. Solid, lasting missionary work is done on our knees. And what I covet more than anything else is that earnest, believing prayer. I should like you to continually to pray, he writes to to his um, supporters at home, not only for the salvation of outsiders, but for blessing on those who've definitely accepted Christ. And I want to be downright in earnest myself and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's uh, sing again, shall we? It's amazing just just reading through those words and thinking about um, what James Fraser did give up. And he must have sung that hymn. I mean, that that hymn was... um, came out of the whole movement that he was a part of there at the turn of the end of the 19th and turn of the 20th century. And you can just sort of hear him singing that, I think. So we move on to the next stage in, uh, in James's life for preparation, which I've called preparation and um, delay. And this comes from a quote that you, can, uh, that you can see there. Preparation, delay and growth are characteristic of God's working, both in history and in nature. And really at first, although there were some signs of, of, of uh, 
growth and some signs of blessing. It was a troublesome time. Um, October 1911 brought the first signs of revolution uh, when the Qing dynasty was overthrown by the Republican government of Sun Yat-sen. This was before the communists, obviously, but this was sort of what began that uh, movement that eventually ended up with um, the communists taking over in Mao Zedong. James had to uh, retreat into Burma, and um, he had some good fellowship down there and also learned a few lessons. For example, uh, at one stage he was very, very short of money. Uh, food ran out. Um, he had to pay his Chinese servant, but no money was coming through uh, from headquarters. Uh, he was much in prayer, so he went to the post office one more time, having been disappointed many times in the past, only to discover that a letter that had travelled from Shanghai to Tengu and then to Burma arrived just in time. And he wrote to his mother, this has, not done a, this has done not a little to strengthen my faith. I think that means it's done a lot, yes, to strengthen my faith. The Lord, I believe, permitted the trial just to show me how he could deliver me out of it. And this was all about God strengthening his faith. Once it was safe to return to China, uh, he arrived in August 1912, and he was joined by an American, Carl um, Goman. Oh, that's him, by the way. That's not Carl Goman on the left, though, I don't think. Um, right, here we go. A visit from a young tribesman then down at uh, Tengyu, uh, with a little red dot there, um, came as an answer to prayer as he continued to pray for his work among the Lisieux. And he was invited to a family wedding at Six Family Hollow that you can see up there. The festivities lasted for two days. There were lots of opportunities for him and for Carl, his uh, new colleague, to talk about Jesus. And at the end, uh, James had visited uh, several villages um, and made contact with the Co family, who had uh, previously, the family we talked about before, who had previously destroyed their uh, demon shelf. And best of all, uh, a very important family for him, the Tsai family, um, committed their lives as best they understood to Christ as well. And on return back to headquarters at Tengu, there was blessing also there. Uh, Forbes was baptised, including James's cook, who had already been a help in witnessing and explaining the gospel, gospel to the uh, Lisieux villagers. And occasionally the Lisieux used to come down from the mountains so he could continue to pastor them and support them. And he wrote of one such occasion when members of this Tsai family came. I enjoyed the evening they stayed here immensely, he said. Their simple ingenuousness attracts me tremendously. They take you into their confidence as if you were an old friend of the family. The boy who married while we were up there learned a new hymn this time. This brings their repertoire to the grand total of three. They religiously rattle through these hymns every evening by way of evening prayers, after which all the family stand up to pray. They tell me they can pray in Lisieux now. Previously, they, they said they could only pray in Chinese. And on Sunday evenings, they try to have an extra special kind of service there's no, nothing very much extra they can actually manage, but anyway, they sing a little more than usual and try to make out what the hymns are all about. Crude, isn't it? But I wonder if the Lord is not just as pleased with their simple attempts at worshipping him as with our elaborate services at home. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. One of them was called Old Six. They always have, seem to have names like Old Six and Old Five and brother number three and stuff like this. Um, I say, teacher, he interposed, it's been fine since we became Christians. Um, sounds like he sort of went to Eton or something. Um, anyway, you just have to go with the uh, 1912 language, I suppose. Um, the evil spirits don't get after us now like they used to. People say that most of the Lisieux up at the Valley of Ease are waiting to see if anything happens to our Tsai family. If not, many of them want to become Christians too. 
and I think you get a hint of the battle that is going to, uh, going to rage. Satan doesn't give up his territory easily. Later he heard that the Sy family had been singing their hymns one evening when the old father had suggested they should take down this demon shelf. They did, but that very night the old man began to suffer from a pain in his back which spread to his whole body. The family didn't know what to do until someone suggested they prayed about it. They did, the pain passed, their faith was strengthened, but the fear still remained that the demons would get at them. James felt the need of getting even closer to the Lisieux and finally remastering their language, so he took a trip with Old Five from the Tsai family to the village of Little River. I think you can also see that up there. Stayed there many days, and Old Five himself preached the gospel uh, to them in Lisieux. And this was the beginning of a strategy of which James was a pioneer, probably 50, 60 or more years ahead of his time, that of an indigenous church with leaders from amongst their own and not dependent on foreign missionaries. And if you think about... Um, I'm a bit hazy on the dates, but the fact that not many decades later, all of the missionaries were ejected from China after Mao's long march. It was a great strategy and clearly a strategy uh, that God had led him in to establish that strong indigenous church so that the leaders could continue without them. Villagers wanted to become Christians. They tore a demon shell from the shrine on the hillside and turned it into a church instead when they were up there. Well, Satan was not happy at this offence on his territory. And returning via the co-family again at, at Trinket Mountain there, of these great names, he heard that one by one the code sons had been attacked by illness, by demon possession, and by suicide. And all this happened, believed, they believed, because they'd forsaken the worship of spirits and turned to God. In the early summer of 1913, a similar set of circumstances result in the whole of the Tsai family, all except this guy, Old Five, renouncing their faith. It just shows you that, uh, again, talking about what we were talking about earlier, the need for prayer, and we'll see that. And he says, I cannot tell you all of it, but the evil one has been terribly busy. The result is that the Desai family, with the exception of Old Five, have gone back to their old life and superstitions. While I was away, their eldest grandson was taken ill with fever. A little quinine would have probably put him right, but instead of coming to us for medicine... They listened to their neighbours and called in a wizard. It was the spirit, he told them, outraged by the pulling down of that bunch of leaves on the demon shelf, who had come to take his revenge. Thereupon, they put up a big bunch of leaves again and promised to sacrifice a pig to the spirits as soon as they could afford it. Down came the hymns, the coloured tracts and the Christian books were put away. They've stopped singing and praying. All these labours seem to have come to nothing, but there were some comforts too. Um, a, Karen, a Karen tribe, this is another tribe from, from a similar area, came from Burma, who also spoke Lisieu, and he was a great um, support, and began to explain to the Tsai family how, the, how, the, how of Satan's strategies and the fact that he had been, a, uh, as the scripture says, a, a liar from the beginning. So James goes off on a journey again through the... Um, uh, through the mountains, and he goes um, all the way from Tengu up as far as Tansar that you can see there. Um, and in Tansar, over a hundred families crowded in while James spoke to them, and the response was confused but positive. And James also saw that the hold that demons had over the people. In one village, the demon priests were forced to pacify the great spirit from time to time by getting volunteers to walk up a ladder of sharpened sword blades naked and in a trance. James wrote, they all say that they wish they knew how to get rid of the burden, but they must do it, 
whether they want to or not. And I think this gives the lie to the statement that you often hear, oh, well, they're happy, we should just leave them alone. It's just not the case. Many responded to the gospel too, and one said, if idols are false and cannot help us, then what is true? James told her about Jesus and how to put her trust in him, and she responded, I feel at peace now, ten-tenths peace. Coming south again, back to Tengu, uh, James also encountered a ferocious Kachin tribes, but God kept them safe, and the Kachin even welcomed them to in their, in, into, their, um, into their homes. But the journey had taken its toll, and he began to suffer from malaria and, and, and other problems. And uh, um, the final blow was a letter from headquarters back in Shanghai telling him that probably he should abandon his work with the Li Su and move to the east of the province where the work was already further developed and had more potential. And James really had to pray through until he got peace about that, trusting God and getting to the point where he was willing to go. Not many days later after that, he received a telegram saying, if you distinctly feel led to stay on the Lisieux work, then you may do so. And I think that's important. Sometimes God brings us to a point where we have to be accepting of his will, even though it's not what we would wish for ourselves. And we sang about it, didn't we, that we should give our wills to the Lord. And then... And then sometimes the thing that we really do want for ourselves, God will give us, but only when we're ready uh, to give it up. Well, we move on to perhaps something that's at the core of uh, Fraser's work, this idea of um, definite prayer. And the whole burden of his was he had felt sure that his work was with these Lisieux tribes, but... The beginnings, as we've seen, were small and shaky. People became Christians, but then they wandered back. Perhaps um, some of them uh, were restored, but it was small numbers. And he got very gloomy, lonely, depressed, doubting, even suicidal, working very much on his own. And at that point, a magazine arrived from home, encouraging him not just to sit there and try and trust God, but actually to actively, should do that too, but actively resist the devil and claim the power of the Lord Jesus through the cross. And he wrote this, I'm an engineer and I believe in things working. I want them to work. But there's no one secret of victory. We need different truths for different times. The passive side of leaving everything to the Lord Jesus, while true, was not all that was needed just then. Resist the devil is also scripture, and I found it worked. One had to learn gradually how to use the newfound weapon of resistance. It seemed as if God was saying, you're crying to me to do a big work among the Lisieux. I'm wanting to do a big work in you. And all this culminated in a trip which James took down into Burma to work on the Lisieux language. And I think, yeah, uh, quite interesting, um, just as a diversion for a second. Um, we saw right at the beginning how he immediately started to try and write down the Lisieux language. And this is John 3.16 in the Western Lisieux script. And he takes capital letters, um, sometimes turning them around, as you see, and... Um, using them to create a whole new alphabet for this language that had never been written before. And in fact, this Fraser script is still in use today, and, in, and as recently as 1992, the Chinese government officially recognised it as the official script of the Lijiu language. So that's, that's pretty impressive. So he goes down to Burma to work more on this script, and um, something very, very significant happened to him at that point. And I, I think if we don't take anything else away from tonight... 
I think uh, this is uh, a vital truth. He wrote to his prayer partners. The Lord has taught me many things lately in regard to the spiritual life. In fact, my own spiritual experience has undergone some upheavals during the past 12 months. Not the least important thing I've learned is in connection with the prayer of faith. I've come to see that in past years I've wasted much time over praying that was not effective prayer at all. Praying without faith is like trying to cut with a blunt knife, much labour expended to little purpose. For the work accomplished by labour in prayer depends on our faith, according to our faith, not labour, be it unto you. I've been impressed lately with the thought that people people fail in praying the prayer of faith because they do not believe that God has answered, but only, sorry, they do not believe that God has answered, but only that he will answer their petitions. They rise from their knees feeling that God will answer sometime or other, but not that he has answered already. This is not the faith that makes prayer effective. True faith glories in the present tense and doesn't trouble itself about the future. God's promises are in the present tense and are quite secure enough to set our hearts at rest. <coughs> Excuse me. Their full outworking is often in the future, but God's word is as good as his bond and we need have no anxiety. Sometimes he gives at once what we ask, but more often he just gives his promise. Perhaps he is more glorified in this latter case, for it means that our faith is tried and strengthened. I do earnestly cover a volume of prayer for my Lisieux work, but over a volume of faith too. I knew, he wrote slightly later, that the time had come for the prayer of faith for me. Fully conscious of what I was doing and what it might cost me, I definitely committed myself to a petition in faith for several hundred Lisieux families to come to Christ. The transaction was done, I rose from my knees with the deep, restful conviction that I had already seen the answer. And I think we'll talk about more of this in a little bit, but that was very significant for him. The fact that he, after working for probably six years, he reached that point where he knew he had to really trust God and believe that God had already answered his prayers. I think we can can learn a lot from that ourselves, I really do. And it was in October, around that time, in in October 1915, that James wrote a long letter to his praying friends back in England, which uh, was called The Prayer of Faith. And we'll look at that after um, we've sung our next song. Do you want to say something, or shall I just do it from here? Yeah, okay. Quite a few years later, um, this letter, The Prayer of Faith, which James wrote, which hasn't quite come out there. No, you can't see it at all. It does say the prayer of faith at the top of there in blue on blue. Um, was published in a little booklet, and I think I've got a PDF version of this, uh, you know, for those of you who know about such things. If anybody's interested, this one belonged to my dad, which is rather good. And I, I want to summarise particularly uh, just one part of this uh, that he uh, wrote about. Um, you'll remember that he was of Scots-Canadian descent, and at this time... Um, the Canadian government were looking for settlers to come and populate and farm the um, Canadian prairies. And he likens this to what we need to do in terms of our prayer. He says this, First of all, 
says, take the case of a Canadian immigrant as an illustration of the prayer of faith. Allured by the prospect of golden grain, he leaves home for the Canadian West. He has a definite object in view, that is, growing wheat. And he says, this is much like the child of God who sets out to pray the prayer of faith and who has a definite object too. It may be the conversion of a son or daughter. It may be power in Christian service. It may be guidance in a perplexing situation or 101 other things. But it is definite. And he talks about general prayer, which we should absolutely offer. And the, the Bible says that we should pray for governments and all those in authority, for example. But then he also makes this distinction, definite prayer. And we've seen his example of definite prayer for uh, hundreds, uh, several hundred Lisu families to turn to the Lord. And then he, he talks about the parallel with the Canadian farmer. First of all, he said, think of the breadth of the territory. There's unlimited scope, literally millions of acres to waiting to be cultivated. And so it is with us. There's a vast, vast field to, for us to go up and claim in faith. There is enough sin, enough sorrow, enough of the influence of Satan in the world to absorb all of our prayers of faith. And the government encourages immigration. They offer reduced sea passages and railway fares, grants of free land, and God is no less urgent in inviting his people to pray. He says, ask, ask that you may receive. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. And he bids us come and occupy the land to play, pray this prayer of faith freely. But at the same time, although there's a huge breadth of territory and we are encouraged to go out there and to claim it, to pray for those things that, that God has laid on our heart, nevertheless there's this idea of fixed limits. If you're a Canadian farmer, you get, apparently, 160 acres. Um, you don't get any more because there's no way you're going to be able to farm any more than that. And he says it's much the same when praying the prayer of definite faith. It's possible to bite off, even in prayer, more than we can chew. And he says, I've definitely asked the Lord for several hundred families of Lisu believers. But there are about 2,000 Lisu families in the district, so why didn't I ask for 1,000? And he says, because I have not faith for 1,000. I believe the Lord has given me faith for more than 100 families, but not for 1,000. So I accept the limits the Lord has, I believe, given me. Perhaps God will give me 1,000. Perhaps he will lead me to commit myself to this definite prayer of faith later on. But we mustn't overload faith. It sounds like the engineer coming out again, isn't it? We must be sane and practical. Let us not claim too little in faith, but let us not claim too much either. I think that's very important. We can pray that all our friends will be saved, or we can pray perhaps that one of our friends will be saved, but perhaps we'd be better off starting, and I've heard Simon say this many times, and others too, perhaps we'd be better off starting by praying that one of our friends would come to the service in two weeks' time when we open the annex, and then grow from there. Um, the other thing that he says is that the Canadian government kind of tells you where your land's going to be. You don't get the pick. And he says, do we always consult the heavenly government at the outset, or do we pray the first thing that comes to mind? Do we spend time waiting upon God to know his will before attempting to embark on his promises? We must get our prayers from God and pray to know his will. And it may take time. He says God was dealing with Hudson Taylor. You remember he was the guy who founded the China Inland Mission that he was serving with. God was dealing with Hudson Taylor for 15 years before he laid upon him the burden of definite prayer for the foundation of the China Inland Mission. God is not in a hurry. 
He cannot do things with us until we are trained and ready for them. We may be certain he has further service, further burdens of faith and prayer to give us when we are ready for them. And then once we have, um, turning to the immigrant again, he's come to an agreement with the Canadian government, he falls in with their terms, he accepts their conditions, agrees to take over the land, presents his claim when he gets to Canada and is given the land. And he says, we need to do a similar thing in prayer. Uh, We need to come to God. And he says, in my case, I prayed continually for the Tengu Lijiu for over four years, asking many times that several hundreds of families might be turned to God. But it was only general prayer. God was dealing with me in the meantime. And you know how a child is sometimes rebuked by his parents for asking something in a wrong way, perhaps in the case of a child, for asking rudely. And the parent will say, ask me properly. That's just what God seemed to be saying to me then. Ask me properly. You've, asked, you've been asking me to do this for the last four years without ever really believing that I would do it. Now ask in faith. And he says, we've read this already, but I felt the burden clearly. I went to my room alone one afternoon and I knelt in prayer. I knelt in prayer and I knew that the time had come for the prayer of faith. And since then, nearly, nearly a year ago now, when he writes, I've never had anything but peace and joy when in touch with God in holding to the ground already claimed and taken. I've never repeated the request and never will. There's no need. It's a solemn thing to enter into a faith covenant with God. It's binding on both parties. You lift up your hand to God, you definitely ask for and definitely received his proffered gift. Then do not get back on your faith, even if you live to be a hundred. I, I think it's, it's a marvellous thing and it's something we need to let sink into our minds. Uh, but that work in prayer, that prayer, is, uh, that, that uh, sense that there is a covenant with God. And, and I don't know if you know the passage, and I forget where it is now, I think it's in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel, where David has been promised that there will always be a um, man to sit on the throne. And... David has been given this promise and then he goes into the temple and he says, Lord, you've given me this promise. I just want to point it out to you. I just want to remind you of it. Don't forget it because you've said. And it's a very, very presumptuous prayer if you read it. In the next break, I'll find it and tell you where it is. But um, it's amazing. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to seek these promises from him. I strongly believe this. And then he wants us to pray them and present them to him and says, here you are, you've promised this, now do it. And I don't think that's presumptuous. I think that's what God's looking for. In the same way that we love it when our children ask us for good things. Isn't that what God says? And then the final thing he says, we need to get to work. The prayer of faith is that prayer where we believe that God has has given us what he's promised. And then we actually have to work hard and pray through all of the details And he says we need to pray through to victory, not giving up, um, not allowing Satan to not give up the territory that we're claiming uh, on on his behalf. So that's the prayer of faith. And and, and if you want, I can lend you this little book. You can read the whole thing. Difficult to summarize it in just a few minutes. So having done that, what happens? Well, over the next few months, there were some encouragements with the Lisieux turning to God and burning their demon selves. But demon shelves, but these several hundred families of believers that James had prayed for, um, they still were not evident. And for five months he held on up in Tansar, up in the north there, um, struggling spiritually and learning much. 
but, but he really felt um, more and more that um, he needed to pray and he needed to claim this victory that God has given him. Finally, though, um, he decided that he would make one last trip around the Lizu villages before writing back to the headquarters in Shanghai and offering for service elsewhere. He knew that God had answered his prayer for the Lizu, but was content to wait for the harvest in God's time, whatever time that might be. And it's at this time that he speaks, I think, in a really clear way, in a way that I've found very helpful, about the tide coming in. He says, I cannot insist too strongly on my own helplessness among these people apart from the grace of God. Although I've now been 10 years in China and have had considerable experience with both Chinese and Lizu, I find myself able to do little or nothing apart from God's going before me and working among men. Without this, I feel like a man who has his boat grounded in shallow water. Pull or push as he may, he will not be able to make his boat move more than a few inches. But let the tide come in and lift his boat off the bottom. Then he will be able to move it as far as he pleases, quite easily and without friction. Have you ever tried pulling a boat up and on, on, off out of the river or out of a lake? Um, it's very, very difficult unless the, the tide comes in and, um, and the, the water's there. It is indeed necessary for me to go around among our leaves, you preaching and teaching and exhorting and rebuting, rebuking, but the amount of progress made thereby depends almost entirely on the state of the spiritual tide in the village, a condition which you can control upon your knees, he's writing to his prayer partners back in the UK, as well as I can. And, and, and don't we need to do that? We, you know, we can all work hard to witness to our friends. We can see the wonderful work that's done by the ministry team here. But unless we are praying for that tide to come in, that work is going to be hard. And we may see a few results. But once the tide comes in, uh, we'll see many, many people turning to the Lord and, and people growing in their faith. And that's why prayer is so important behind what it is that we're trying to do here, I think. So, James is going on this final trip and we're almost done. Two Lisieux from Tansar were with him as he reached the first village he'd visited many times before. And talking and singing with the usual crowd in the evening around the log fire, he had a peace of heart, whether they responded to the message that he'd faithfully taught them or not. The next morning he was preparing to take the road again with no visible response. When his companions ran in hastily, one of the families wanted to become Christian. James gathered them together and explained to them exactly what turning to God really meant didn't want an easy believism here. He wanted to make sure they knew what they were doing. And over the next few days, seven families in this one village destroyed their demon shelves completely. Continuing his travels at Melting Pot Village... I wonder if I've got a map back here again. No, sorry. You'll have to remember it from last time. Continuing his travels at Melting Pot Village, ten families destroyed all traces of demon worship. Cypress Hill... Exactly eight years to the day after his landing in China, 15 families turned to the Lord. And if you start to start um, reading it, um, Turtle Village, 24 families, Mottled Hill, great names these, 49 families. And across the 80 miles of mountain country, from Tansar in the north to Mottled Hill in the south, 129 families, around 600 people, had turned to Christ. And the confidence 
in God, which James had reached through prayer, had really been answered. I'm reminded again of those uh, words from Hudson Taylor that we heard at the beginning. There is a living God. He has spoken in his word. He means just what he says and will do all that he has promised. So we're going to... um, That's okay. So just to summarise for a couple of minutes in closing... Uh, what can we learn from Fraser's life? And I think we've uh, talked a lot of things as we've been through, so let me try and summarise some of those. Just to say, though, that over the next 20 years, until James's uh, tra- tragically early death uh, in 1938, uh, the work among the leaves you prospered even beyond his uh, expectations and the faith that he felt God had given him at that time. And by 1920 alone, he calculated there were 400 families representing 2,000 people who were saved. And there were setbacks and encouragements as James sought to establish a Lisieux church with local leaders, not dependent, as we've seen, on, on foreign missionaries, and to grow really mature Christians. Um, but nevertheless, uh, as we've seen today, it's estimated there are between 100,000 and 200,000 total Lisieux Christians in the Lisieux church, and more than 75,000 Lisieux Bibles have been printed in China following this explosive growth using the script which um, Fraser invented. So, just a few things, really, about what we can learn. Um, I think, first of all, uh, and, and Heather referred to it, this godly heritage is a, is, is a wonderful thing, and, and particularly uh, his mother, and we haven't really talked too much about it, was a huge influence on his life, establishing this prayer circle. And you've heard him write again and again about the fact that it's the prayers of the people back in England who are making just as much impact as um, has his work. And um, I, I think, you know, for us, with our families, with our friends, uh, the prayers that we can give for them, even from a very young age, uh, is enormously, enormously effective. And, and I think I was thinking this morning what, what Heather was saying about Team Ellen. And it seems to me that we had a Team Fraser there back in the UK, and they weren't um, doing all the uh, stuff with the websites and the uh, GPS, but they were doing more, probably, uh, effective work uh, through prayer in enabling James, who was largely on his own, had one or two people helping him, but, but a lot of what he was doing was on his own. And I think it's a helpful analogy to think in the same way as that team was supporting Ellen Clifford as she went around the world pretty much by herself. So they were supporting him. Uh, and being enabling him really without their prayers and without the work that they did, as he's described it, on, on their knees, then um, nothing really would have been achieved. And I think he'd be the first to say that. Uh, the second thing, we talked about this at the beginning, was the need to serve faithfully. And, and um, I'll just read you a bit of this because I th- was quite struck by it. He says, It was uh, come to me very forcibly of, let- of late that it matters little what the work is in which we're engaged so long as God has put it into our hands. The temptation I've often had to contend with is persistent under many forms. If only I were in such and such a position, shouldn't I be able to do a great work? Yes, I'm only studying engineering at present, but when I'm in training for missionary work, things will be different and much more helpful. Or or I'm just in preparation at present, taking Bible courses and so on, but when I get out to China, my work will really begin. Or, Or yes, you've left home now, but I'm only on the voyage, you know. When I'm really in China, I shall have a splendid chance of service. Or, well, well, I'm here at the training, learning language, but all my time must be given to language study. How can I do missionary work? When I'm settled down in my field station and able to speak freely, opportunities will be unlimited, etc. 
etc. And it's all this if and when, I believe the devil is very fond of those conjunctions, he says. I have today, to a limited extent, the opportunities to which he has been putting me off. But far from helping me to be faithful in the use of them, he now turns quite a different face. And I think, for me, I, I'm often saying could and should and uh, would and if and when. And sometimes we just need to see where it is that, that God has put us now. Not that he might lead us to greater things in the future, but he's looking for us to be faithful in serving where we are now. Um, I think we've heard about how he waits on God and, and, and listens, and we've heard him say that we need to be very careful that we make sure that um, we're looking to God for the um, work that he's called us to do. And he writes this. The matter is in the Lord's hand. If he wants me to go to the Lisieux, he will send me. It would be very unwise to attempt to rush things or force a door which he has closed. But we shall see. We've talked about preparation too and the need for um, preparation in prayer and personal preparation in our own lives, the work that God does in us. And he said, preparation, delay and growth are characteristic of God's work, both in history and in nature. Scripture and the facts of nature meet when James says, the husbandman, this is authorised version, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient over it. I think what he means is that the, the farmer waits for the crops to grow. And the same principle applies to our own spiritual lives and to our labour in the Lord. A mature Christian is not the product of a day or a month or a year either. It takes time to grow in Christ and we must strike our roots down deep in the soil of the word and be strengthened by long, long experience. And you know, we were reflecting this on the Leaders Away Day uh, a few weeks ago uh, and how the Lord is blessing us here with the, um, almost said annex there, try not to do that, um, the church centre and, and with the people that we're seeing and the baptisms that we've seen over the past two years. But you know, it's been a long preparation and I think we should pay, pay tribute to Simon and to the other church leaders who have uh, pursued a singular goal to seek mission and to seek maturity amongst us here. And we're seeing the fruit of that. But it's not been a short time. It's been a long time. And we need to be patient. Uh, but at the same time, be so grateful for now those roots that have um, gone down firm, I believe, and the uh, clear way ahead has, has, has brought such, um, such fruit. Um, he talked a little bit about personal work being important as well as uh, preaching. And um, <clears throat> I think, a, 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 again, we've seen that, haven't we, uh, very much over the past few years and, and the work that Julie's doing now. Preaching is vital, and we can't do without that. But at the same time, it's getting alongside and just sharing our stories, as we've, as we've been saying over these past few weeks, which also yields uh, really probably the greater dividend at the end of the day. Um, he talked a bit about the need for the work of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and one of the things I love about Fraser is the analogies that he uses, and I'm sorry, I'm running out of time now, but I'll be very quick and just share, share this one. It's a bit of a strange one, but you've got to remember that he's writing at the time of World War I, when uh, back in Europe, in the trenches, uh, the terrible gas attacks were taking place. And he says... These people out here are not only ignorant and superstitious, they have a heathen atmosphere all about them. One can actually feel it. We're not dealing with an enemy, he means the devil, that fires at the head only, 
but with an enemy who uses gas attacks which wrap the people around with deadly effect and yet are impalpable, elusive. What would you think of the folly of a soldier who fired a gun into the gas to kill it or drive it back? Nor would it be of any more avail to teach or preach to the Lisieux here while they are held back by these invisible forces. Poisonous gas cannot be disposed, I suppose, in any other way than by wind springing up and dispersing it. And it's the breath of God that can blow away all those evil spirits and evil vapours from the atmosphere of a village in answer to your prayers. We are not fighting against flesh and blood. And that movement of the Holy Spirit was what I'm sure he he would say that he saw as he did that final tour around those uh, villages. And that's a work that's done by prayer uh, above all. And um, hopefully you've spotted, uh, above all, prayer, prayer, and more prayer. And it's a, uh, a team effort. And I'll, I'll just close with this. I used to think that prayer would have the first place and teaching the second. I now feel it would be truer to give prayer the first, second, and third place and teaching the fourth I find myself able to do little or nothing apart from God's going before me and working among men. Without this, I feel like a man who has his boat grounded in shallow water. Pull or push as he may, he will not be able to make his boat move more than a few inches, but let the tide come in and he will be able to move it as far as he pleases quite easily and without friction. The progress depends entirely on the state of the spiritual tide among the people I'm working with, a condition which we control upon our knees. So I think we've seen some amazing things from from, from this man's life. And uh, I think there are some amazing lessons, but the, the biggest one, the greatest one has got to be that prayer of faith, looking to God to definitely show us the things that he wants us to pray for, getting serious about praying for them, whatever it may be, whether it's for our families, whether it's for our friends, to see them saved, whether it's for the work in this church, pray God it would be for work overseas, whatever it might be that that, that God lays on our heart, that we would look to see what it is, and then we would pray seriously until we can pray that prayer of faith, perhaps for a friend, perhaps for a a son or daughter or for a family member, that they, would, uh, that they would be saved. So I really pray that we take away from tonight a renewed enthusiasm to commit to pray for those things that God has laid on our heart, uh, whether they be far away or near at hand, and to seek God to find out what those things are and to pray until we can be sure that he's answered. And Lord, so much...